Welcome to Soul Conversations. We are three Korean adoptees that talk about anything and everything through an adoptee lens. I'm Benny. I'm Shanae. And I'm Kara. And this is Season 3, Episode 6. Before we get started with this week's episode, we would like to take a moment of silence in remembrance of the victims of the Atlanta spa shooting one year ago on March 16th, 2021. Soon Chung Park, Hyun Chung Grant, Soon Cha Kim, Yong A Yu, Xiao Chie Tan, and Dao Yo Feng. Thank you so much for that, Shanae. I'm really looking forward to jumping into kind of a reflection episode on that exact event today. And I'm thrilled before we jump into today's topic to be introducing a friend onto the show. His name is Andrew Murphy. And before I go into too much of, you know, where he's from and what what he's been up to, the quick context I'll give is that, you know, Andrew and I went to undergrad together at the University of Louisville. And at least for me, it was like, I always knew who Andrew was, like we were friendly. We didn't like super hang out, but I always knew he was an adoptee. And at least for me at that time, I wasn't like truly in my like adoptee identity at all. So it was always kind of like a awkward thing for me. Look, now I'm like confessing to him all these years later. This is like the confession I didn't give him when we first met up. But at the time, it was like, oh, I didn't really have that type of language in my repertoire. So it was always just kind of like a friendly, like, hi, you know, from from a distance. And then we kind of co- like kept up over like social media after college. And then just a couple, what was it, weeks ago, I guess, Andrew, he reached out and was in Seattle. And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, let's hang out. Because I just remember, again, from my side, somebody had like asked about you. And I was like, I... I was like, I don't know what happened to him actually. And then I remember going to your Instagram or your Facebook or something that, something like that. And I was like, oh shit, he's like super Korean. I was like, something, I was like, something happened. I was like, I want to know like what went down. And then I started seeing you posting about all these like policy things that are like totally over my head. I was like, yeah, he is definitely up to something and can't wait to hear all about it. So without further ado, Andrew Murphy, and would love to just have you introduce yourselves to the listeners and basically tell us what you told me at our, our meetup a couple weeks ago. Yeah, super up to something that definitely describes the last <laughs> uh, 15 years of my life. Let me just say before I introduce myself, uh, Shanae, Kara, Benny, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really humbled and honored to be invited to this episode, especially given, you know, the importance and the remembrance that's happened. It's something that was a really monumental moment in my life, which I know we'll talk about later as as in all of our lives. And so uh, to be invited in this conversation, I'm I'm really just uh, thrilled and honored. So thank you for that. Um, Yeah. As, as Kara mentioned, uh, a lot has happened, uh, I guess. And and I have a a winding journey that I think has led to a, a pretty interesting 
semi-conclusion. But let, let me give you the, the brief sketch, and then I'll probably share more of my, my story, my narrative, as this episode goes on. But to begin, I was born in 1987 in South Korea, right outside of Seoul, um, given up for birth immediately uh, by my biological mother, and was adopted at the age of four months by my parents in Western Kentucky. Uh, They are white, working class, uh, high school educated, devout Catholic folks. And I grew up in a small town called Owensboro, which Kara has probably heard of being from Kentucky, but um, I'm sure many of the listeners here haven't. Growing up, it was about 60,000 people. And just for context, in my high school of over 800 students, there were three Asian Americans and all three of us were Korean adoptees. Uh, so hey. very homogenous, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and we and one of them was my cousin. <laughs> so, uh, actually, um, yeah, yeah, very homogenous small town. So grew up there. It was a first of my family to go to college. Very fortunately, went to college with Kara, and then from there, you know, I know we kind of lost touch. So here is kind of the sketch of what has happened, which may or may not make me interesting here. But after college, I landed a teaching job in Las Vegas, uh, which was my first foray really west of the Mississippi River. Spent a couple years teaching and really enjoyed getting to know kids in the inner city and, and trying to be part of their unique journeys and help them get to college the same way that you know I needed help growing up. That journey really led into this piece of wanting to do more in the community. And that led me to become a community organizer. Uh, and that really was a pivotal moment in my life. So here I am. I am uh, 23, going on 24, in Las Vegas, working in the community, organizing in many areas like Asian Americans, feeling very inauthentic, you know, going around right. with these, gr- these groups. And it's like, uh, hey, you know, I know I look like you, but I don't really understand your experience at all. Um, and then being called names by some of my Asian American friends in Las Vegas, like whitewashed or like a Twinkie. Um, Yeah, yeah. And so I think kind of both the agitation from those friends, as well as the curiosity that came out of that organizing experience, led me to want to learn more about my identity. And so the brief sketch of what happened since then is in the summer of uh, 2011, I went on a two-week motherland tour to Korea got back after those two weeks in Vegas and spent six months unable to focus on any of my work and said, you know what, I need to go back. I went back to Seoul for what was supposed to be three months. And in the middle of that three months, I decided it needed to be longer. So after the three months, I came back to Vegas, sold all of my possessions in one week, bought a one-way ticket, packed up all my stuff in four suitcases, like clothes, things that would fit. And went back to Korea and was there for four and a half years. So it, it was a wild, wild journey while I was there. I spent the first two years in Korean language school, uh, the next two years doing a master's in Korean history, um, and then even did policy for a Congress member in the Korean National Assembly before I left. In the end, Korea was not the long-term fit for me as much as I enjoyed it and attempted hard to assimilate. It just didn't feel like the perfect place that would allow me to express all the different pieces of me. And that's when I landed in 2016 in LA. 
So uh, here in Los Angeles, which, you know, whenever I introduce where I am, I also do a land acknowledgement. So here in Los Angeles on unceded Chumash and Tongva, native land, I found that I can be fully American and fully Korean in this place with this huge Korea town and so much, not just Korean culture, but just Asian American culture in general. So I've been here since then. I work in education policy. And yeah, I'm really thrilled just to be here today and and to talk again with you, Kara, and also to get to know the two of you, Benny and Sinead. I told y'all it was a story. Yeah. That's awesome. What a wild ride. Andrew, what was the leper for you deciding one day to sell all your possessions, pack up everything in a suitcase? You know, you mentioned that you did that, but anything come to mind that you remember or recall that one night maybe you're laying in bed and said, I got to make this major life decision? I think in one way, you got to blame it on cell phone contracts. (laughs) And here's what I mean by that. Um, I was in Korea for like six weeks and, you know, I had the week by week cell phone and it was so expensive. And I was like, you know, I should just like buy a phone here that works here and get a contract. And I go in, the only contracts they offered were like year long contracts. And so this is like six weeks until this, what was supposed to be a three month trip. And I was like, well, I guess I'm here for the next year. (laughs) So, so I I, uh, signed on to that contract, but that I say that in jest, but the actual, the serious reason is, you know, when I first started that three months, the reason it was three months was to just uh, spend one term in Korean language school. And uh, I just realized that level one at Yonsei University Korean Language Institute was not enough to really whet my appetite of wanting to learn Korean. Um, but then also th- there was so much more I wanted to discover. You know, I was in the middle of the birth family search. I was um, still really getting to know the country and I needed more time. And, you know, the really interesting thing is part of the story that I told Kara that I didn't include in that little intro that I did is there was also this complicated component of, you know, things in, in Las Vegas before I left were really moving. At that time, I was president of Las Vegas Young Democrats. I was heavily involved in uh, the political sphere and was actually offered the chance to run for office with some people who could potentially fund me. And, you know, for me, as someone who really cares about public service and improving the world for other people, especially along the lines of racial and social justice, that was a chance to really accomplish some of my life dreams at the age of like 23. And so actually, I put them on hold when I first went to Korea for that three month trip to say, you know, I want to explore this a little bit and then come back and make a decision whether to run for this office or not. And when I came back, part of that calculus too was, you know, I came back up for those three months for that one week of selling all my stuff. And I said to the funders and the campaign people, I was like, you know, politics is always going to be there, but I know that I'll be so much better as a public leader if I get to know truly who I am. Um, and so, yeah, I got to turn down this offer and I got to spend some more time back in Korea. So I turned that down and, you know, actually the, the, I, I still, I haven't run for office since then, uh, who knows, maybe one day, but one of the things I've seen in LA is that actually really has paid dividends is after living in Korea, having that experience coming here, I feel like I'm way more prepared to be an authentic leader and to really be a community leader, especially in these Asian Pacific Islander, uh, the acronym I'll use a lot as we talk is API, especially in these API um, civic spaces, civil rights spaces, because I have this story and because I have this identity that I can speak from. And so I think it was a long-term investment that was worth it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting too, when we talked about you making that move to Korea, but then, you know, after you were there for a little bit, also realizing too, that this wasn't the long-term goal. 
And I'm kind of curious too of well, you know, what elements of that brought you to come back to America and to LA. And obviously, we can all see why LA would might might be a good fit. But just curious to know those lovers that got pulled to as well. Yeah, you know, there's such a strong tie-in. I think with that question, with the subject we're talking about today, like Asian hate in America, because so much of anti-Asian hate and racism and xenophobia is this concept of us being perpetual foreigners, right? Like, for instance, I remember in high school um, uh, getting asked to this dance called the Sadie Hawkins dance, which it's where, you know, the girls ask the guys. Um, And uh, so I got asked to go to this dance with this young woman who was at another school. So I go to her house um, to pick her up for the dance. The first time meeting her. And I remember her brother looking at me, uh, older brother, and saying, you know, where are you from? And I'm like, well, I go to Owensboro Catholic High School. And he's like, no, where are you really from? And I'm like, um, here? I, I don't know what you mean. You know, I live a few streets over. And him saying, you know, to my face, you don't look like you're from around here, right? And I th- know that all of us as APIs, as Asian Americans, all of us have stories like that of being made to feel like a perpetual foreigner, Unfortunately, you know, to, Benny, to answer your question, unfortunately in Korea, I, I felt like that as well. And it was interesting because I thought with all of this work I was doing, becoming fluent in the Korean language, thoroughly investing in all types of Korean culture. I mean, I was deep into it, y'all. I was going to Music Bank and like watching the big K-pop bands. I was like really into it. Um, had, uh, you know, honestly, for the first almost a year I was there, refused to speak English, didn't really have, you know, English speaking friends. It was fully immersed. But even despite that, I can remember on the bus one time, this older Korean woman, probably a middle-aged Korean woman asking me for directions of where she's supposed to get off at the stop. And I responded to her fluently in Korean, but she could tell I had an accent. And she was like, oh, I'm so in Korean. Again, this whole conversation is in Korean. She's like, I'm so embarrassed. Um, I can't believe I asked a foreigner, you know, for directions in my own city. And I'm like, well, I'm actually Korean. And I can remember her looking me in the eye and saying to me, you're not a Korean, right? And so it's like, you know, no, no matter how much you try to assimilate, whether that's at home in Kentucky where I grew up or in Korea, even despite speaking the language fluently, there's this sense, uh, sense of foreignness. And I think ultimately, uh, Benny, that, that's why I left because you know, I got in that work culture and as much as I wanted to just like live the rest of my life there and just have this, you know, perfect Korean life, it just wasn't going to happen because frankly, the way I was raised in this sense of Americanness is something that I can't get rid of. And and at this point, it's something I've come to find I'm really proud of as well, because it's a unique aspect of me. Andrew, you talked about your journey to Korea, bringing about this sort of sense of authentic self and authenticity and how you think that that's really served you well. And I'm curious because today's episode is about anti-Asian hate and our journey and looking back on the last year and what that's been like and what it's been like watching it. And I'm curious because we are all, Benny Carrot and myself and a lot of our listeners are at various points in our journeys and identifying as Korean Americans. I feel like that's something that, you know, as adoptees, it's a source of struggle for a lot of us, I think, to really claim that Koreanness. And you really so openly spoke to your need to satiate that part of your identity. And I'm curious, with you being in LA and really embracing your duality and your Korean American identity, what was the experience of hearing about the Atlanta shootings like for you? I think there's a couple pieces of your question there, which I really appreciate. One is, you know, you mentioned identifying as Korean American. I'm pretty upfront 
especially even in Korean American spaces, that my identity is Korean American adoptee, right? Um, and I and I make that delineation and not just say, even though you know sometimes I'll say yes, I'm Korean American, but in those spaces I add that I'm adoptee because it is such a, a special and unique part of my journey. And frankly, it also tells a story, a story of you know the diaspora. I want to get in a little bit, maybe it'll be in in a question here in a bit, but about this whole concept of like how this adoptee history and like what cogs we are in this larger wheel of South Korea's economic development. But before we speak about that, to answer your question, you know, for me, Atlanta was beyond frustrating for so many reasons. And it affected me in so many ways. I mean, there is the larger external circles about just racism in general, especially coming out of the summer of 2020 and the racial reckoning our country had in, and still needs to have in response to um, the police murder of George Floyd, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, and many other examples of racism against Black Americans. So this larger context of racism, this context of gun violence, this context of not feeling safe. And, you know, I remember one of my reflections after Atlanta was to think about who does feel safe in America, you know? I mean, there are many intersectional lines of how disturbing this event was. Feeling unsafe as an Asian American, you know, after that, women or women presenting individuals feeling unsafe. Feeling unsafe just in a random place, you know, in while you're while you're getting a massage you know some of that just like feeling of chaos and in lack of security but on a really specific level i think what hurt me the most about that is the anonymity of the victims of how many news outlets couldn't get their names right or would mispronounce their names or would put their last names or first names would mix and jumble those things. And it was almost like we are just API bodies, right? We don't have enough value to even be named appropriately when we're killed in an incident like this. You know, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I could keep going on. Obviously, I'm sure the three of you have a lot of thoughts as well, but it was just so much frustration. And it was really a culmination of all the things that I experienced growing up too and seeing those culminate in such a tragic event. Thank you so much for sharing that, Andrew. I mean, you definitely said some things that, again, if people could see our faces on camera, um, I was like, yeah, didn't think of it like that. It was, um, you know, frustrated for sure. And and this, the fear thing, I think it's really interesting what you said, Andrew, of like, who feels safe? I mean, that's exactly what started hitting for me was there were so many reasons why what happened was a terror And one thing that was traumatizing for me too, was even just seeing that dude's face, like all over Facebook, like they just put his face, like all over, like the articles getting shared. And I was like, that looks like every dude walking down Frankfurt Avenue in Louisville where I live. And to me, like one of the more uncomfortable things that it brought up among a lot of things was just the spotlight on like Asian fetishes. And I was like, oh God, like now like we're gonna have this conversation and like for me at least it's that's always been one of those it's like I'm pretty open about a lot of things but that's the one I'm like please don't ask me about that please don't ask me about that like that's just like the one that I'm just like oh like do we have to talk about this like do I have to really explain it to you so that 
was another like specific thing that happened for me. And then I would say the other two big things was my white resentment went through the roof. I mean, it was already at an all time high from 2020 and everything that you had mentioned, Andrew. I mean, that's really what sparked my like white anger and, you know, lost a lot of friends and even had family members, you know, like that was the time where I was not gentle with my words. And I was not trying to sugarcoat things to make everybody feel happy anymore. Like I'd hit my wall. And it was just like, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say white people. I'm going to say that this is racist. I'm going to say that I've been gaslit. All these things that I've not been wanting to say, like I'm finally saying it. And it brought out a lot of things in me that I didn't know existed. A lot of, it brought out a lot of things in my friends and family and acquaintances that I didn't know existed. So it was like a re-spark of that when this happened of like just hating white people and being mad at white people. And then for me, it also took on a lot of workplace trauma for me because I was one month in and a new job and, you know, I get asked, you know, very gently and there was no pressure Like, there's no pressure, but there is pressure, right. To like speak, you know, on one of those like company wide calls where they get all the diversity people on a webcam and they want you to share a personal story about how racism has affected your life to illustrate to your coworkers how this is affecting you in a real world. And it's just like, I'm having to like deal with all these personal frustrations and feelings of not feeling safe and still having to log on and go to these damn meetings and like cry in between meetings candidly, or just like obsess through the news in between meetings. And then I'm still being asked to like share my experience on top of that. And it put me in a spiral of, of course I wanted to like, you know, for the people, for the cause, like, of course. But then there was this also really angry part of me too, because I had just come out of a situation um, from my last job with that. Just like, am I always going to continue to be like the token? Like, am I always going to be asked to do these things? And like, Honestly, it, at the same time as my white resentment growing, my own like Asian hatred, my own internalized racism was like almost like kicking up a notch as well, because I'm like, I felt burdened by my Asianness. Is that like pressure thing that we have of like, now I got to know all the facts because everyone's going to be like, well, how many victims was it? And like, who were they? And what were their national? Like, now I have to turn into the expert because white people also expect that from us as well even in these horrible moments. Carol, that's so powerful. And I really appreciate you voicing that. And one of the things that I heard that I saw in many other communities and and part of the reason I use the word culmination is like, I feel like Atlanta was really a breaking point for a lot of us. It's like we had held these frustrations and these feelings and the microaggressions and all these things inside for so long. And then we saw this and we're, we're just like, I just can't take this shit anymore. You know, I I have to say something. And if I'm going to have a moment, like, especially keep in mind, this is during the pandemic, right? Which has, I don't know about you all, but has been one of the most stressful things in my life. And in that anxiety and that tension um, and coming out of everything that happened in 2020 and keep in mind coming out of one of the most uh, tumultuous presidential elections in U.S. history. All of these feelings and everything coming together 
plus the racism we had already been encountering, seeing all the you know anti-Asian uh, racism, hate, and xenophobia that happened during the pandemic, and then we see this thing happen in Atlanta. We hear it even being dismissed in the moment. You know, people saying stuff like, "Oh, he had a bad day." I think it was one of the DAs said that or something like that. And us as a community just snapping, being like, oh, hell no. Like, we are not gonna, we're not going to take this shit. And we need to do something about this because we don't ever want to feel like this ever again. And I can say if there's ever, and I don't want to move too quickly because Benny and Sinead would love to hear your thoughts as well. But I can say if there's one positive that came out of this really tragic moment in this tragic loss of life, it's the way that our communities together rallied in solidarity. And for us, it really was another Vincent Chin moment of us seeing something that's so heinous and tragic that it motivates our communities to action. And we were already doing a lot of that work, but you saw it in various pockets, but you saw the unity in our community coming together, investing resources, and finally took something this tragic, but we saw from whether it's the corporate sector or even other, you know, communities of color, some solidarity on behalf of us and saying that, hey, we, we stand with, you know, our API siblings during this struggle. And we also agree that something in America needs to change. Absolutely. I know, Kara, you had mentioned the uncomfortableness and really the unfair burden of explaining the fetishization of Asian women. I mean, let's be honest, there's fetishization of Asian culture in general, but specifically Asian women within this context. And Andrew, you talked about the idea of Atlanta really being a breaking point for so many of us. And both of those things resonate so deeply with me and where I was at that point last year. I feel like particularly for me, Atlanta was the first moment where I really felt like I needed to stand up and scream at everybody in my immediate circle. Like, I am Asian. Like, I am freaking Korean. and None of you see it. I feel like I had said it to people sort of on the periphery, like acquaintances, but like it was the first time that in my like deepest relationships, like with my parents and with my husband, that I was so, I don't want to use the word unhinged because I feel like that sends the wrong connotation, but I was beside myself. I was so angry. And so, and even talking about it now, like my heart is like racing, but just you know, I feel like the the platitudes and the, you know, oh, don't look at what happened on the news or like, I'm sure you're fine. And, you know, people that for my entire life or a big chunk of my life had been entrusted or experienced me telling them sort of these microaggressions or, you know, things that I had been through and them saying like, oh, yeah, like people are assholes. But I think it was that breaking point where I didn't care anymore what the sanctity of a relationship was. I was to the point where, you know, I sat down with my husband and said, we need to talk about this. And this is how I feel like you're watching me like fall apart. And, you know, we need to address this. And I was at the point where depending upon how he received that conversation and reacted, I was seriously questioning, like, do we need to get a divorce? Because I feel like if you don't respond the way that I need you to respond, I was really questioning, like, do I need to pull this trigger? And like with my parents, I think it was the first time that I really as bluntly suggested that they fell short in raising me. And I love my parents. We have a very good relationship, but it was the first time that it really came up like you're missing a huge piece and like a large piece was missing from my upbringing and we need to address it. It's the elephant in the room. 
Now it's on national news. And let me explain to you why this is so triggering and why this is so problematic. I think much to the same way that a lot of transracial Black adoptees probably need to have conversations with their maybe white families about their own safety and how certain things need to be taught and race needs to be at the forefront of a lot of conversations. But I think that was one of the more, probably maybe the most poignant moment in my journey as an adoptee in terms of really not only realizing for myself, there was definitely that first moment of like, this could be me. Like people have said things to me, people have fetishized me in this way, the same way that this man has. And like nobody even thinks twice about it. Um, but then also to my relationships. And I remember Benny and I were supposed to record that night and we sat down. It was episode four of Soul Conversation season one. And we were like, what do we do? How do we address this? Do we record? Do we not record? And we really hemmed and hawed. And I think for both of us, you know, we publicly laid out our feelings about how we didn't feel supported. We didn't feel seen, how frustrating it was. And as hard as that was, I think, I know for me, at least it was, cathartic, I think, in that moment. Benny, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm also like very grateful, Benny, to you that we got to really navigate that experience and share that moment and that pain together. I would absolutely agree, Shanae. And you know, I'll keep my sentiments brief because everything that you all said before, I couldn't equally relate to. I think some of the points that stuck with me was just the culmination of everything that happened before that moment in time. And all of a sudden, it seems so much more real because there were things that were happening in everyone's lives that maybe were brushed off as someone said a racist word or had something that was a microaggression. But this was really something that everyone in America, in the world, really could see that this was dangerous. People died and were murdered. And I think that was the point for me where I felt really unsafe just walking in my own neighborhood that this is real it wasn't just going to be me having microaggressions in a grocery store this could happen to me or my friends or anyone else that were experiencing other things like that the other thing that hit me too really that day was the press conference from i think it was the police chief who said this person was really having a bad day and it just reinforced how the people that are supposed to keep us safe are also the ones that are doing us wrong. And I don't want to go too much into that, but I felt really disappointed along with the fact that people were saying it was just a coincidence that happened to be all spas that had an Asian influence too as well. And those things don't exist in today's culture that, you know, it just happened to be happenstance just really brought forth the true colors of our neighbors. And I think, Andrew, I think that was great too, what you said, that there's really some rally around the community, not just with Koreans and Korean adoptees, but many other Asians from different sense just coming along and uniting. And I really thought that was an amazing thing. One last thing I'll pardon us too is I remember our company, the one I was working for at the time, released a statement and didn't even ask me about how I felt that day. And I am the only Korean and only Asian in that organization. And that really showed me how corporations view diversity and contextualize us to show that they actually care, but they really don't. So I don't want to go too much more because it really is kind of depressing about all the things that culminate out of this. But I do feel, Shanae, you just had it on perfectly that I'm so glad for you and everyone else in this call that are still here and still having these great conversations that we don't ever want to forget. And these people that died are important. And I think it's good that we continue to talk and try to move forward and find solutions that we can do in our own communities. Yeah. And Benny, you just 
As you're speaking, I just thought of one thing that I think really characterizes what has happened in the past two years with our communities. And that is, you know, you touched on this point of invisibility. Because we get stereotyped as the model minority, oftentimes we're invisible. It's like kids who look like us or API kids might not get as much help in class because they just, we teachers or, uh, or other people in the building might just assume, oh, you're good at school, et cetera, et cetera. Or even like you just said, your company not asking you how you felt about this statement. A lot of times they forget we're even in the room, that invisibility. But during the pandemic, we've seen, if you see the attacks on elders, the anti-Asian hate, uh, racism, xenophobia, that I'm sure some of you have experienced. I've experienced people yelling at me in the street and all of that culminating in Atlanta. It's like, wait a minute. First of all, you're saying we're invisible, but now we can't hide. So which one is it? Are we invisible or are we a target? You know, Sinead, you just talked about like the pride in being Asian that you felt after this event and really standing up for yourself and asserting yourself in your own identity. I can totally relate to that too. You know, I got this, there's this shirt that has the Sandra O quote. It's an honor just to be Asian. Shout out to East West players in Los Angeles who produced that shirt and put that amazing quote on there. I can just say that after our community's response to combating anti-Asian hate, also I should acknowledge some of my colleagues here in LA who started Stop AAPI Hate. Uh, I started wearing that shirt more often. And whereas before, you know, I was like, okay, I'm proud of this shirt. This is a pretty cool shirt. Within the past like year and a half, it's really been, oh, you know, this is a facet of my identity that I'm not going to hide from. And I'm going to be out and I'm going to be bold about my Asian-ness because there's some really incredible things. You know, if we talk about just in the context of being Korean, it's like, yes, the whole adoptee thing is really a smear on Korea's contemporary history and there are so many complicated pieces of that, but there are also so many parts of being Korean that I'm super proud of, <laughs> you know, whether it's Squid Game, Parasite, BTS, or Blackpink, but even way beyond that, you know, tracing my lineage back hundreds of years, like back to the dynasties, back to, you know, I mean, things just like inventions that happen in Korean culture, or even just the strength of character that the people have, you know, one of the things that happened in Korea that really left an indelible mark on me was there was this disaster called the Sewol Ferry Disaster. And I don't know if y'all heard very much about this in the US, but basically there was this ship, it was like a, a cruise liner that had a bunch of Korean high school students, in addition to some other passengers. And due to everything from graft and corruption to government officials getting paid off and this ship not meeting the standards that it needed to meet in order to continue to be operational and that just kind of being swept under the rug, as well as many other facets of Korean culture and kind of just like submission that went into this. So this ship sank and hundreds of lives of Korean students were lost, almost like an entire class, like an entire year from that high school. And after that, that led this kind of rally in Korean culture to say that we need to reform Korean society to make sure this never happens again. And part of those protests, there were like tens of thousands, maybe maybe even hundreds of thousands maybe even millions, I think hundreds of thousands is probably right, of people who were silent protesting in remembrance of both what happened and also in protesting against the different levels of corruption that led that type of disaster to happen. To make a long story short, that is really the momentum 
in the impetus that led to the impeachment of the Korean president, Park Geun-hye, at that time. And this was all done peacefully. You know, it wasn't a violent uh, insurrection like we saw in the Capitol um, almost a year ago. It was peaceful. People in the streets, a candlelit protest helped change the entire country. And there are so many parts of that, like Koreanness, that I'm just like, this is so cool to learn about. I'm so proud of this. And to go back to what we were talking about, it's like, I want to be able to express that in public and not just like, oh, you're docile, you're, you study hard, you work hard, like not just whatever some people might say about what their assumptions are of our, our culture, but what's the real uniqueness and uh, creativity and innovation and really cool stories that we have. And those are all things you know, as I dig deeper into my learnings about myself, I'm super proud of, and I think we should all be proud of the individual cultures because within the Asian Pacific Islander contingent, you think about it's the largest continent in the world and every single country in the continent of Asia, as well as the Pacific region, and even every region is completely different with different foods and languages and cultures. And these are things that shouldn't just be washed over or put all in one bucket. Like this is you know, there, there's some incredible things happening that we really need to celebrate. Absolutely. I feel like that momentum that you talk about and really the rallying has been a long time coming um, and much needed. I was just reading an article that NBC put out around Christmas time about how within the last year, I think with a Google search that the term Asian American had an increased search by over like 5,000% coupled with like, what is a hate crime? So just the awareness that people are curious and and finally looking. And I feel like, you know, people are more outspoken. People have put out books since then. People are leading rallies. And even though there are still instances of anti-Asian hate that are happening, for instance, Michelle Lee recently for New Year's Eve was just the recipient of a horrible phone call um, because she made right. a comment about eating dumpling soup for the new year and the comeback that she had that she wanted to address it. And I can't remember her exact wordage, but something about like, can we make like hashtag very Asian be something for 2022 and just the pride, you know, and, and acknowledging that something that someone said to her was deeply racist and wrong, but also like, I'm not going to let that make me feel insecure about my heritage or my culture. Like, I'm going to retaliate with being even more proudly Asian than I already was in the first place, which I think is great. And I think, I, Andrew, I'd be curious to know sort of what your take is, because I feel like there has been tangible change in the last year as a result of everybody coming together. But what are your thoughts in terms of whether or not that tangible change is synonymous with sustainable change? It's an interesting question. I think that like all civil rights efforts, change really comes gradually. In some ways, we have seen significant change in, for instance, media representation. Getting the Marvel movie Shang-Chi, seeing movies like Parasite and uh, Minari being recipients of some awards in categories that had never been awarded to either an Asian or an Asian American before. I mean, these are things that we didn't see as kids, <laughs> you know? I mean, growing up, I can't remember other than like Jackie Chan and Jet Li, which were names that I used to get called a lot as a kid. I can't remember being represented on screen, but now it's like how many significant events. I mean, Squid Game is part of that too, even though it's obviously not Asian American, but we're getting real representation in areas that we didn't have before in casting. 
But that being said, there's still so long to go. And it's not just, I mean, media representation is important because that's what the general public sees. And that helps open people's eyes to like who we are and our culture and our issues. But there's still so much further to go. And, and I think that one of the major areas that hasn't happened that needs to happen is this recognition of the distinct uniqueness within each API community. You know, I mean, it, whereas before people might not have known what Lunar New Year is, now there might be some people that say, oh, happy Chinese New Year. But then it's like, whoa, hold on. It's not only celebrated in China. And actually, the dates of New Year are celebrated different times and different days for different Asian cultures, too. So it's not just one day either. So it's like, you know, we take a little leap forward, but... There's so much more that needs to happen and in a variety of categories. One, one other thing I'll say is we still are sorely lacking in representation, in leadership in all sectors, whether that is political leadership, corporate leadership, or nonprofit leadership. In a lot of these sectors, we are the workers or we are that level right below senior management, but we are not at the upper echelons of different organizations that are not Asian-owned companies or organizations. And I think that's another area in which a lot of change and reform needs to happen. And really, American society embracing that our identity is beyond this model minority myth will help because it won't just be, oh, okay, you're the person, you're the pencil pusher, you're the hard worker, but it will be, oh, you actually, you have these leadership skills and these analytical skills that would serve any organization well. Right before the pandemic, I don't know if you all saw what happened with Dr. Leanna Wynn, who was in charge of Planned Parenthood, and I believe the first ever Asian American to lead Planned Parenthood. But this is uh, someone who was an expert in her field and who was hired to lead really like this medical innovation of Planned Parenthood. And yet as time went on, she was pushed out rather unceremoniously for being like not as what they described, I think, as politically astute as they wanted the leader of Planned Parenthood in the U.S. to be. And, you know, from her perspective, I know a lot of us in our community really rallied behind her because it's like, wait a minute, one, she is actually really good at that. And two, that's not the job you hired her to do. So you hired this medical expert to do this. And now you're saying, oh, well, you don't have these soft skills. And what are the different ways that members of our community are typecast into not having these different things, not having like the quote unquote leadership skills, like the whole like, you know, Asians at Harvard or in Harvard admissions. I think all these things kind of tie together. And so that's a long winded way of answering a question to say that we still have a very long way to go. Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously not involved in that area and I, I really appreciate you all in the positive sentiment. I'm definitely learning some things because remember I'm the angry one. So I was like, I, you know, never even considered the the silver lining or the positives that came out of that. Anger is great though, Kara, because <laughs> you know, all <laughs> all pain demands to be felt. And pain can come out in many different ways. But you know, when I was a community organizer, one thing they taught us is the best quality to have is cold anger. It's like the hot anger might be, okay, I'm going to blow up and flip this table over. The cold anger is I'm going to take what you've done to me and I'm going to use that as a way to motivate me and drive me forward. And so I think that anger is not something that we should, I mean, let's put it, hey, I'll just say it this way. I'm a Christian and Jesus definitely was flipping over some tables. <laughs> there is a time and a place for holy, sacred anger. And so, Kara, I'm glad you have that. 
Yes. That, thank you for bringing me back. It was that I question sometimes, you know, hearing what you're saying, Andrew, about representation and some of the progress we've made. And like, again, maybe it's just like the cynic in me, but sometimes when I do, when I get on TikTok or I get on Instagram, like, you know, this is a year later when I think it's over and done with, I see the next Karen video of some woman talking about leave your Asian kids or something that this one kind of made headlines like right after the news anchor news had exploded. So it's, it's good to hear that because I think for at least for the other angry ones out there, like me, sometimes it feels like it's never going to change. Like all this time has gone by, all these things are happening. And yes, all the representation and people love it. Squid games is la 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 hottest Halloween costume. But, and, but then I still see the stuff online and I'm just like, is it ever really going to change or is the positive and the fads and the popularity of Asian culture just being notched up in a way to distract us? God, now I sound like a conspiracy theorist. To distract us from what's actually happening, which is not much. And we're still seeing it online and I'm still seeing these elders getting beat up in the streets in New York. And I'm still seeing all these things. And I, at least for me, admittedly so, I was hot on it. I got that hot anger. I got the kimchi fever, you know, like I, I was definitely in there. And now personally for me, I've kind of like trailed off. And then I do, I watch some of these other people who are at the forefront of keeping the fight and the momentum alive. And, you know, I've seen the crowds, the crowds are thinner. People aren't as red hot, angry about it anymore. Where you know, there's victims and things that are happening that are slipping through the cracks again and getting drowned out by the news. So I don't know. That's just my two cents of I'm thankful for you guys at least painting a positive picture because in uh, negative Nancy land over here, it sometimes feels like I don't really know if it's getting better. And it's changed me as a whole, especially out in public where like my fuse is just like permanently shorter. Even the other day I was like with some girlfriends at a hotel and my friend like went up to the front desk guy and was asking, you know, can we get some knives and plates? And man's like, oh, like, oh, you're talking to your friend? Like, oh, are you, are you ty- typing to her in Chinese? And I'm like, what? Oh, he's like, oh, or maybe Japanese. And like, there are these two black girls in the lobby that like looked up and like was listening to the whole conversation. And I was just like, wow, dude, like, did you really just like double profile us? He's like, oh, I'm just kidding. Come on, like lighten up. But it's just like, even that type of stuff. I'm like, are you for real, dude? Are you really giving me like drama right now? And you're lucky that I did not say the things that I wanted to say. You're lucky that I like joined in on the joke and like laughed it off. But I would definitely say that while I'm not as like hot, angry as I was when it first happened, my fuse, especially in public spaces, and especially for like little incidences like that is shorter. I have not gotten any better or much better at calling it out eloquently or professionally or confidently when it happens to me in like a workplace setting or something like that. But in public, I am definitely like a step or two away from like being the next girl on Twitter who just like loses her shit because somebody says something to me. Well, I would love to answer the question. Just do it. What do we do about it? I don't know. You tell me, Andrew Murphy, where do we go? What do we do about it? (laughs) Well, I have a few initial thoughts, actually four. (laughs) One is a deeper understanding of our own context and culture and identity, which builds within us the authenticity that allows us to be the activists that we need to be. But to put that to the side for a moment, and I do want to circle back to towards the end of the show, talking about where we 
stand as Korean adoptees in the greater context of Korean culture and history. But the three things here in immediate in America I see is one, y'all, we have to talk about regulating social media and most especially Facebook, is these companies that are, these are not public institutions. This is not the DMV. This is not government run. Like these are private corporations that are motivated first and foremost by profit. And frankly, racism is profitable, right? Like that gets the clicks and the likes and the views. And this type of one, misinformation, if we talk about what's happened in the pandemic, but also racism needs to be regulated. Hey, you know, (laughs) I'm all for censorship. Right. There are some things that need to be censored. Now, I'm not saying that we should censor free speech, but hate speech is not free speech. Hate speech has consequences and consequences cost. So it's not free speech. The second thing is like, yes, there needs to be more education here in L.A. One of the big things that a group of civil rights leaders in the API community did is we pushed for this salaried course, which means, you know, teachers, they uh, do trainings every year for professional development. And that adds points that they can get salary increases. We said there needs to be a course on implicit bias as it pertains to Asian students. Like adults who are not API need to be trained on this. They need to be trained on this very type of conversation that we're having here. It's like they need exposure to that. And we were successfully able to get that passed in the LA Unified School District, which is the the nation's second largest school district. So it's yes, adults also need to be made more aware and sensitive to the uniqueness and the needs of our community. But I think the the biggest return on investment is the third thing, which is we need to educate our youth. There are some groups out there. One of them I think of is Act to Change that does a lot of anti-bullying efforts, especially efforts to stop bullying of API students. And I think that absolutely needs to happen. Is frankly, I don't know about you all, but the stuff that I encountered growing up was not okay. The type of things that were said to me, the way I was at times physically assaulted in school and no one really seemed to care or pay any attention. But I mean, even just like the daily verbal assaults, like frankly, being called racist names, like that does permanent psychological damage to children. That's thankfully I've had some great therapists who have helped me address a lot of that. So it's like we need to educate our students so that those type of things are no longer commonplace not just in, say, Irvine or, you know, Koreatown, where there are a ton of Asian students here in the Southern California area, but all throughout the U.S. So those are kind of three things that I'm thinking of. Andrew, I'm so glad that we could have you on the podcast. Before I let you go, is there anything else you wanted to share and anything else you wanted to talk about for our listeners? Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. You know, one of the things I alluded to a couple times on this podcast, so um, what I guess for those of you who waited until the end of this podcast, now you get to hear it, um, is I talked about our place in Korean history as adoptees. And I think this is really important. This is something that I studied when I did my master's in Korean history um, at Seoul National University. And, and I thought it was really important to share to any adoptee listeners. Um, so let me start with this frame. One of the things, the most difficult transitions for me in my acceptance of my own adoptee journey is uh, this feeling of abandonment and victimization. You know, this feeling of like, how could my biological mother and to a certain extent my biological father as well, just like get rid of me, <laughs> you know? And it's like, I think about the difficulties I had growing up, growing up 
in a homogenous white community experiencing racism and really feeling like I got the short end of the stick in life, right? I think that there's really a couple things that I would just want to say to any adoptee listening to this. It's not prescriptive. It might not be for everyone, but it has especially helped me. And one of those things is I think it's really important to acknowledge that we as Korean adoptees, as transracial international adoptees, are in fact victims. Um, And here's what I mean by that. If you look at Korean history, uh, and I'm sure you all have done this on other episodes, I won't go too deep into it, but the uh, international adoption institution in Korea was began to get rid of mixed children who were born to predominantly uh, African-American GIs from the U.S. in the Korean War. So this really was ethnic cleansing, right? That was the beginning. uh, And obviously you're not murdering these babies, but giving them away for international adoption. And so that was like the first iteration of Korean international adoption. This really second big wave, especially during its peak in the 1980s when I was adopted, when uh, some of you were adopted, this was about... Korea's economic development and systemically what happened, whether it was intended or not, is the systemic elimination of the lower class in Korea. And so you think about all of these single mothers who were pressured, such as my mother, who, who were pressured into giving children up for adoption because under the premise that, you know, they're going to live such better, which better means more economically stable lives elsewhere. Right. And so I think this is super important to acknowledge because as an adoptee, it's like we think about our individual story. And it's like, okay, this is my story. But you also, like, it's important to acknowledge this greater context in that we were one of the big reasons for South Korea's economic drive from the third poorest country in the world by OECD standards to the 16th richest country in the world. And frankly, if you have a whole, like, generation of single parent households and those children that don't exist, that's a lot less money that you have to spend on social services. And that money went into the Korean economy. And so that's the first thing is I think we need to acknowledge our place in Korean history. It's a lot of Korea's economic miracle was built on our backs and through the selling of our bodies through adoption agencies, which are for-profit institutions. So that's the first piece, acknowledging we are victims. And that's important. But there's this second piece too. And this is the piece I really wanted to say and I I, I think has been so transformative in my life is that I can own and exceed and surpass that victimhood in my personal life. It's like I might exist in this context of having been someone who has been victimized, but I don't have to be a victim and I can own my pain and own my trauma and own my life. And For me, I don't think every adoptee needs to do what I did, and I had so much privilege to be able to do this, but not every adoptee needs to go to Korea or learn the Korean language or even find their birth parents, which by the way, we didn't get into that, but I did find my birth mother, and to be honest, it didn't turn out so peachy, so be careful what you wish for, but it took me doing all that and living for four and a half years in Korean society in order to be able to own really my story, but really after all that was done, coming back to the U.S., what I found was... The most important thing was for me to embrace how important and special and unique and loved and lovable that I am just for being uniquely me. 
and being proud of being adopted, being proud of being raised in Kentucky and have a little bit, a little bit of a country accent, being proud of like all these unique facets of me allow me to surpass this kind of like chip on my shoulder. And it was important to acknowledge that chip and it's still with me today. But like, I think that, and if there's one message I have is like, if you're out there and you're a listener and you're adoptee is like you loving you for the uniqueness that you are and embracing all facets of you and being okay with multiple of those pieces, not making sense sometimes, but that being okay. Right. And finding that self-acceptance because we're not going to get acceptance anywhere else. Korean society is not going to accept us. American society is not going to accept us. Frankly, my parents will never be able to truly understand or accept me for who I am because they haven't had my experience and because they look differently than me. Right. Uh, But for me, finding that self-acceptance and being able to accept everything that I am for the uniqueness that I have, that has been transformative in my life. And frankly, I wouldn't be able, have been able to even say this without years and years of therapy. So don't don't think that I've discovered this on my own. That and and some really truly amazing friends who are like family to me. But I, I just my wish for all adoptees, especially as we go into this 2022 year, which I know this podcast is being released in March. So belated Happy New Year! Um, but I hope all of you and the three of you as hosts as well. If you haven't already, I hope you do find that self acceptance because that really I think can make the difference in your life. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is CAD Church right there. You heard it here first. I loved it. Thank you so much, Andrew. That was was awesome. Thanks so much for having me, y'all. It's been a real pleasure. Love to do this again sometime. Well, you are welcome back anytime. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story and on such an, an, an important topic. You can follow Andrew on Instagram at his handle, Andrew Taesu. And you can also follow us at Soul Conversations on Instagram. And don't forget to keep up with us on our website, which is soulconversationspodcast.com. Thank you guys so much for everything. And until next time. Bye, everyone.